0: doing the intro go
1: why do you do this to me go do it i can't think hello and welcome
0: why do you always do the weird voices <laughs>
1: <laughs> hi and welcome to dine jesus i Christ. literally this is why i don't do the intros
0: hi and welcome No. my name is jimmy i'm here with my wife Lindsay. hi and uh yeah it's Lindsay's episode, so she's supposed to do the <laughs> intro. We've done over fifty of the fifty. I think was the last one. Today
1: is fifty-one
0: of these so far, and mm-hmm. we've been doing it for over a year. Which, yeah, because we've skipped weeks, like last week. Hmm. I'm not gonna say it's my fault. Cause,
1: no, that was one hundred percent my yeah. fault.
0: Uh, but yeah. So go then. It's all you.
1: <laughs> okay. So, uh, today. I don't think you have ever heard of this person, woman. Uh, she is an American murderer known as La Pistolera.
0: Nope.
1: <laughs> um, so basically her name is Sharon Elizabeth. I think it's Kinney. I'm going to call her Kinney. No Kinney. <laughs> but it's K-I-N-N-E.
0: Okay. That so works.
1: Kenny seems the most natural way to say that to me. It could be kind. it could be Just, kin Kinny okay Kenny. it is. Um,
0: let me pull the listeners to see if they're okay with Kenny. They're good.
1: Fuck you. Here <laughs> <You're a> dick. <laughs> All right. uh, so basically, um, I I have like a little blurb here. It kind of summarizes her, but I think I'm just gonna dive in and skip that.
0: Dive in. <laughs> All
1: right. So, uh, she was born Sharon Elizabeth Hall. Okay. Uh, in on November 30th of 1939 in Independence, Missouri. Okay. Uh, when she was in junior high, uh, Doris and Eugene Hall, her parents,
0: okay.
1: uh, moved the whole family to Washington.
0: You said junior high? Yes. Okay.
1: Uh, no clue why, just moved them to Washington. But by the time that Sharon was 15 years old, they had moved back to Missouri. Okay. Uh, where Sharon attended Williams William Christman High School. When she was 16, Sharon met 22-year-old college student James Kinney at a church function in the summer of 1956. Okay. And the couple dated regularly until James returned to Brigham Young University in Utah in the fall. So um, Sharon was reportedly deeply interested in finding a partner with prospects and who could take her away from independence. So she's just looking for anything. Uh, A husband that's going to someone that's going to provide for her and get her the hell out of a sugar daddy. Missouri, yeah. Okay. She, she was miserable in Missouri. <laughs> Misery loves company.
0: Missouri, Missouri loves company, huh?
1: <laughs> uh, but basically, when James left, she wrote a letter to him uh, at school, informing him that she was pregnant.
0: Oh, she a liar, isn't she?
1: Possibly, I cannot confirm or deny. Um. So, I mean, it's already pretty... I mean, granted, the times were different in, like, the mid-50s there, but we've already got a 22-year-old sexing up a 16-year-old. Where it's starting off great. Yeah, that...
0: As... uh, I mean...
1: If you're over 20, you shouldn't be looking at anyone under 18. Under 19, I would argue. Well, okay. Legally... Yep.
0: Plain devil's advocate. You're talking 50s.
1: I just said it was a different time.
0: I know. And at that time, I'm pretty sure age of consent was 16. Was it? I'm, I'm pretty sure it's still 16 in some states.
1: I, I know it is in some states. I just... No. Yeah. I dude, Shit's weird. It, it just doesn't seem right to me. It doesn't. You're at completely different maturity levels there. Like...
0: I don't know. I know a lot of 22... Like... When I was that age, I knew a lot of twenty-two-year-old dudes who had the maturity of like thirteen-year-olds. So
1: that still doesn't. I
0: I know. I'm just saying
1: it's it's weird. I don't like it. Whatever. She told him she was pregnant. Uh, James took leave from his college and returned to Independence, where he married Sharon on October 18th, 1956. So literally, like, he leaves for they, they meet the summer of 1956. He leaves for college. She sends him this letter. Hey, I'm pregnant. So he comes back like two months later. So basically. And marries her.
0: They meet a month later. He leaves. She tells him, hey, you're pregnant. He comes home on like Thanksgiving break and just marries her. Yes. Okay. Uh,
1: and then the couple's marriage license identified 16 year old Sharon as being 18 and a widow. Which leads me to believe that maybe the age of consent was not, in fact, 16 in this situation. Are you looking it up?
0: Yeah, what state were they in? Missouri. Missouri. 17.
1: Okay, so still, yeah. There's a
0: close in age exception if they're within a four-year period.
1: Which they weren't. Yep. I mean, they were if she when she lied and said she was 18, but even then, that's technically over the age of consent. But like they're... that's probably
0: why they lied.
1: Yeah. Uh, although she later refused to address the uh the fact that she says this, Sharon told people at the time that she had been married when her family lived in Washington to a man who later died in a car accident. Okay. So
0: I'm I'm not I feel like I'm playing devil's advocate in this a lot. Do we know that he knew her actual age? Sorry, like I've, she it sounds like she's desperate to get out. She sounds like someone who would be willing to lie about her age,
1: I guess. But I feel like if they were at a church event, like somebody somewhere knew how old she was. You know what I mean? They only knew each other a
0: month, though. Like, I don't see what I mean. Like, yeah, I'm not I'm not trying to stick up for him in any circumstance. But we also don't know where.
1: But also, like, like. I feel like. Granted, I don't know how how we're going down. We are going down a rabbit hole. Uh, I don't know how active her parents were in her life, but like.
0: I'm assuming not if she wanted the fuck out. She probably didn't share shit with her parents. Fair enough. That's why I'm saying I'm not like trying to stick up for the guy in this situation. But because... it would have been
1: obvious that she was getting married. Like. You know. Yeah. Uh, there, there, there's a lot I don't like going on here. But anyway. Uh, not that I'm sticking up for her. She's the villain in this story. Yeah. No. The only
0: reason I say that is because. There's already a lie that she's 18. Mm -hmm. She was married. The dude died in a car accident. Exactly. That's already one lie. So I'm just, I'm throwing it out there. And that's setting
1: aside the potential lie of her being pregnant. Yes. So.
0: And I'm not, like I said, I'm not saying the guy didn't know. I'm just saying that is a possibility that he Uh, thought she was 18. I guess, yeah.
1: So yeah, that was her reasoning was that she was 18 and she was widowed to a guy that she had been married to in Washington who died in a car accident. Okay. Uh, the new couple held a second more formal wedding the next year in the Salt Lake Temple after Sharon had completed the, the process of converting to Mormonism. Okay. After their wedding, the couple returned to Provo, Utah where Kinney had been att- where James had been attending college, but at the end of the fall semester, he took another hold on his studies and he and uh, Sharon returned to independence again, where both of them took jobs. Uh, Sharon was babysitting and like doing like shopkeeping and uh, James was an electrical engineer at Bendix Aviation. <clears throat> Although Sharon claimed to have miscarried the child that had brought their marriage together, uh, she soon became pregnant again, and in the fall of 1957, she gave birth to a girl they named Donna. I right. think it's Donna. It's D-A-N-N-A. Dana. So I wanted to say, like, Dana, or... or...
0: I think Dana's one N. D-
1: Dana is usually one N.
0: Let's just say Donna. And, Bucket. like,
1: A-N-N-A is usually Anna, so I'm, I'm just going with Donna. Make sense? Good. Okay. We're all on board.
0: I feel like we are going down some weird rabbit holes. This this episode's <laughs> going to be wild. It's
1: all over the place. Yep. <laughs> uh, so Sharon was reportedly a, a free spender, is the description <laughs> they use for her. A.K.A.
0: She-, she was a gold digger who loves having money.
1: Yeah. <laughs> uh, She was reportedly a free spender who expected the finer things out of life. Uh, But on James's salary, they lived first in a rented home next to his parents, and then in a ranch-style house they had built uh, in Independence. What did he do? He was an electrical engineer. Oh, yeah,
0: that's right. That's right. That's right.
1: Yes, electrical engineer. Uh, So they had enough to build a house, but maybe not as much to, like, actual actually like spend whatever the fuck they wanted. Yeah. Uh so James worked the night shift at Bendix Aviation and Sharon initially filled her days first with shopping and later with other men. Okay. Uh-huh. Uh by the time the couple had a second child named Troy, Sharon was carrying on a regular affair with a friend from her high school days named John Boldis.
0: Do we know that this the second child's name is Troy? Yes. Is it her husband's?
1: The, it, there's nothing, nothing saying okay. that he is or he isn't. Uh, But... Okay. By early 1960, James was contemplating divorce partially because of his wife's spendthrift habits and partially because he was strongly suspecting that she was being unfaithful to him. Fair enough. So she's having an affair and she's not being very secret about it uh he spoke to his parents about the possibility of divorce on march 18, 1960 uh, telling them that sharon had agreed to give him a divorce if he allowed her to keep the house the couple's daughter and paid her a thousand dollars but the elder kinney couple his parents who were devout mormons urged james to stay in his marriage Okay. Uh, Sharon also, though, was thinking about ways out of the marriage, according to John Baldus, the guy she was having the affair with. Uh, she once offered him a thousand dollars to kill her husband and find some or find someone who would. Although he later claimed that she may have been joking. So. <laughs> okay. Uh huh. Uh. So now we're going to start getting into. The true crime part of it.
0: Okay. I'm wondering what this bitch did.
1: <laughs> According to Sharon at around 5:30 PM on the evening of March 19th. So we're talking the day after James talks to his parents about mm-hmm. a divorce. Uh, she heard a gunshot from the direction of the bedroom in which her husband was sleeping. Entering the room, she found their two and a half year old daughter, Donna, uh, on the bed next to her father. Donna was holding one of James's guns, a twenty-two caliber, high standard, semi-automatic target pistol. And James was bleeding from an apparent gunshot wound in the back of his head. <laughs>
0: she framed her daughter for murder. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> so to be fair, uh, 22 pistol, 22s are small bullets. Mm-hmm. They are, like, if you're talking pistol, it's lighter than a 9 millimeter 45.
1: But, come on like yeah uh (laughs) so sharon called the police but james was dead by the time the ambulance arrived uh to carry him to the hospital uh police were unable to recover any fingerprints from the well-oiled grip of the pistol and a paraffin test for gunshot residue was not performed on donna or sharon so they they didn't do any testing on them swab them Uh, Multiple people, including family and neighbors, told police that James had often allowed Donna to play with his guns. And in a test by investigating officers, Donna proved able to pull the trigger on a gun matching the one that had killed her father. How old was the kid? Two and a half. Okay. Uh, With no evidence to the contrary, investigators ruled the case an accidental homicide. The pistol that killed James was taken into police custody and never returned to Sharon, despite her efforts to reclaim it. Uh, She later had a male friend secretly buy her a 22 caliber automatic pistol. When the friend told her that he had registered the gun in her name, she requested that he re-register it under a name other than hers. So she wants the gun, but she doesn't want it in her name.
0: That is uh, just for everyone listening. That's a bad fucking sign.
1: Yeah. Someone's like, "Hey, get me a gun, but make sure I, my name is not attached to it." Anyway, from they're gonna kill somebody. Just throwing <laughs> that out there. With the investigation into his death closed, James was buried, and his wife collected on his life insurance policies valued at twenty nine thousand dollars. Okay. So, are you looking up what that converts to today?
0: I'm. I'm just curious. Um. So
1: this is 1960. Okay. Sixty. Uh huh.
0: 1960
1: and
0: it was 29,000, $29,000. Oh, that's a uh, 257,000 now.
1: Holy shit. I mean, he was an electrical engineer, so they probably could afford to have a well, higher they probably, life insurance policy. Probably had a
0: good life insurance policy in case he was doing depending on what he was doing in engineering.
1: Yeah. Okay, so James is dead. She moves on with her life.
0: And her they're fucking two and a half year old assassinated him got it
1: uh all right so here we're gonna get into a different person who ends up being a victim okay
0: okay so i just sketch what we've learned so far starting with a new person
1: yes okay uh so patricia jones was born patricia clements one of six children born to mr and mrs clements in saint joseph missouri After graduating from a local high school, she married Walter T. Jones, Jr., her high school sweetheart. Uh, Walter Jones enlisted in the Marine Corps shortly after their marriage, and the couple relocated to the West Coast while Jones served. Uh, After his discharge from the military, they returned to the Midwest and settled in independence with their two children. By 1960, almost five years into the marriage, Patricia was working as a file clerk for the Internal Revenue Service, aka the IRS, while her husband sold cars. Despite uh, his marriage and children, Walter Jones reportedly had a wandering eye. On April 16th, he met Sharon Kinney when she bought a Ford Thunderbird from his dealership using some of the insurance payout from her husband's death. Of course because who doesn't go out and buy a brand new car a month after your husband has died (laughs)
0: it's almost like she did it
1: (laughs) Uh, so she bought the car from him and the two began an affair shortly thereafter Sharon viewed him as a prospect for a second husband but Jones was uninterested in leaving his wife despite the rockiness of their relationship when he declined to go on a trip to Washington with her in May uh, Sharon reluctantly went to her brother went with her brother instead although Sharon and Walter reunited on May 25th shortly after sharon returned to missouri the relationship was quickly set on the rocks when sharon told jones that she was pregnant and he was the father of the baby okay (laughs) jones instead of responding with what kenny expected to be with what sharon expected to be an agreement to divorce his wife completely ended the affair
0: (laughs) he's like i'm done with your ass yes okay
1: According to Sharon's later testimony on the afternoon of May 26th, she contacted Patricia Jones at her office and told her that Walter was having an affair with Sharon's sister. Uh, Sharon then met with Patricia Jones that evening to discuss the matter further before dropping her off near the Joneses' house. Okay. Patricia never actually made it back to her house that evening according according to Walter uh, Walter then filed a missing persons report with the police the next day and began calling people he thought might have seen his wife he got a lead when he spoke to friends of Patricia's who carpooled to work with her uh, the friends told Jones that Patricia had reported receiving a phone call that day from an unnamed woman who wanted to meet with her she asked the carpool driver she had asked the carpool driver to drop her off at a street corner in In Independence, which he had done. So, like, after she finished work, he just dropped her off at another street. Uh, The occupants of the carpool had seen a woman waiting for Jones in another car at the shop, but did not recognize her. Uh, They nevertheless provided a, a description of the unknown woman to Walter. Okay. Uh, Suspicious of the identity of the unknown woman based on the carpooler's general description, Walter called Sharon and asked if she had seen or spoken to his wife. Sharon uh, uh, admitted that she had indeed seen Patricia that day. Uh, She had met her to tell her about Walter's affair. According to Sharon, she last saw Patricia where she dropped her off near the Joneses' house, speaking to an unknown man in a green 1957 Ford.
0: And then Sharon's daughter popped out of the back seat and shot her.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, according to Sharon's admission over the phone, Walter met with her late Friday evening and insisted she give him more details about where his wife was. He later admitted to going so far as to hold a key to her throat threateningly.
0: Damn, he. He straight up skipped the I'ma key your car face. It went straight throat. to I I'm gonna key your throat.
1: I'ma key your carotid. <laughs>
0: I'ma key your car odded. <laughs> <laughs> that was terrible. Yeah, terrible. I hate we're, myself for that we're, one.
1: We're gonna lose listeners for it's that a, one. It's okay. Uh, so Sharon's response was after leaving Jones to call John Boldus, the guy that she was having the affair with First, and asked him what. There's
0: so many affairs. I'm keeping <laughs> track of. I'm losing track of who's sleeping with who at this point.
1: Uh, are you really?
0: No. I'm oh, okay. I was going to say
1: John's the one that she had the affair with when Originally. she was still married to her first husband. Uh, so she called him to ask him for to help her search for Patricia Jones. Uh, shortly before midnight, and within hours of Sharon's conversation with Walter, she and John had found the body of a woman in a secluded area approximately one mile outside of Independence.
0: How fucking... What a clinky dink.
1: Yep. She she just so happened to be the one yeah, to find that the body. Yeah, that one mile. Um, according to John, he had been the one to suggest searching the area in which they encountered the body. It was a spot to which they had often gone on dates before. Hmm. That's that's some kind of fucked up though.
0: I mean, no, because she knew the area well.
1: That's true. So she would have an idea of how often there. Because you got to think about it. There. She
0: she disposed of the body before it was before but, Walter found out that she had talked to the person. That's
1: true. But what? What made John suggest that they search there?
0: He was familiar with the area.
1: I guess, but like
0: that's the only thing I can think of.
1: Yeah. Uh, the body, dressed in a black sweater and yellow skirt, was soon identified as the missing Patricia. Uh, she had been hit with four shots from a twenty two caliber pistol. Uh, although the fatal wound was a shot to Jones's head, entering near her mouth in an upward trajectory, she also had one. Uh, through and through bullet wound to her abdomen and two penetrating gunshot wounds to her shoulders on a downward projectory through her body.
0: Okay.
1: Uh, powder burns on the hemline of her skirt, which had been raised to her waist, indicated that the gun had been fired from close range at least once. Initial reports and investigation placed Jones's placed Patricia's time of death at approximately 9 p.m. on May 27th. Uh, and then she was buried on May thirty first. Okay. So that that leads me to believe that she was obviously shot like the the first three times.
0: I I feel like it. She was shot, went down, and then and bah, then bah, bah. yeah
1: yeah yeah. All right. So. <clears throat> Investigators immediately began to question Sharon, James, and Walter. Uh, all, all three were questioned... Sorry, my brain broke on the sentence structure here. All three were questioned on May 28th. Uh, John and Walter yeah, uh, both gave written statements admitting to... Ha- admitting to have been dating Sharon and both agreed to lie detector tests Sharon gave an oral statement to police but declined to sign a written one or take a lie detector test
0: fucking how many red goddamn flags do they need right <clears throat> like husband gets assassinated by 2 year old with a 22 i'm assuming her affairs didn't become public at that point then the wife of a man who's married Dies dating the same woman, woman with fucking twenty two holes in her, and then she's like, "Yeah, I did this." Oh no, I'm gonna write that down. No lie detector. And both the guys are like, "Yo, fucking hook me up."
1: Uh, so Sharon was questioned again on the morning of May thirtieth, and John on May thirty first. The scheduled polygraphs for the two men were performed on June first, and both men were deemed to have been truthful in their statements. Uh, I have my own separate issue with polygraph tests, but...
0: Yeah, it's a a mind over matter game.
1: It is. But in this case, it... it...
0: But the thing is, back then, it Mm -hmm. was not publicly known...
1: That you could cheat
0: them. That you could cheat them. Yeah. So that's a bigger factor. The fact that they were willing to take them, Mm -hmm. I think in my mind, makes a bigger statement towards their innocence. Yeah. Because like today, we know you can cheat a polygraph. Mm Mm-hmm. But back then, it wasn't well known. Yeah, so. that's
1: true. Uh, Sharon's brother Eugene was also questioned on May 31st, but declined to answer the question, like to any of the questions they were asking him. Uh, while police questioned potential suspects and witnesses, other investigators focused on processing the crime scene. Repeated attempts were made to find the bullet that had passed through Jones's body and the murder weapon, including. Uh, sifting the dirt at the crime scene for bullets, and the deployment of a troop of Boy Scouts to search for a gun. So.
0: That was actually common. The Boy Scouts. Mm-hmm. If they if a crime scene happened in like a wooded or like a, a non like urban area, I
1: was gonna say they would know what to look for.
0: They would they would like obviously deploy them the to the area. crime scene like when the body was still there. But it would be yeah. if they were look, going back looking for evidence, mm-hmm. they would use a like. Boy Scouts, park rangers, mm-hmm. stuff like that, because they know when something's out of place.
1: Yeah. Um, a twenty two caliber rifle slug was eventually found buried in the ground where Jones's body had been found. Uh, what? Nothing. Because I said rifle slug? Yeah. It That's what it says here. I, I'm assuming it's the unregistered gun.
0: Yeah, well, so... It yeah, could, okay. it
1: could just be a typo. Like
0: it might be because, like, a twenty-two round for a pistol, a rifle—they're all the same. That's yeah. what it just—it caught me off guard because I thought earlier you said she got a second. She got the uh, someone bought her a twenty-two pistol, and this one says rifle. But I think
1: later in this paragraph, it's identified as a pistol too. So I'm assuming okay. it's a pistol. Okay. Um. So they found the slug. Buried in the ground where Jones's body had been found, providing okay. evidence that at least some of her wounds had been sustained at the place where her body had been found. Okay. Uh, though investigators went so far as to drag the bottom of nearby bodies of water, the gun that had shot Patricia, which was assumed to be the 22 caliber pistol, could not be found. Okay. Buildings uh, near where Patricia's body had been located were also searched for... Uh, blood and gunshot evidence according to the with, in accordance with police's theory that Jones had been attacked elsewhere and then transported outdoors. A quote, white powdery substance uh, was found in Jones's hair sorry, that was found in Jones's hair was initially believed to the sentence doesn't make sense. That's what I get. Okay. Um I'm just going to I'm just going to read it. A white powdery substance found in Jones's hair was initially believed I think it's to be a trace evidence of some other crime scene area. An area which fueled the search of nearby buildings but was later determined to be fly eggs. Okay. <clears throat> so obviously she was there long enough that Nature which doesn't, do, days, it doesn't take long.
0: They said no. they started searching five hours. Mm-hmm. They found her five hours after beginning searching.
1: Mm-hmm. So
0: she was out there at least five hours. I mean, it's possible.
1: Yeah. Well, longer, obviously. Because yeah. they didn't start searching until the next That's why I said the at, next least, day. at
0: least five yeah. hours.
1: Uh, so Sharon was arrested at her home for the murder around 11 p.m. on May 31st. So actually the day that Patricia was buried.
0: Okay. So... And I'm not trying to constantly derail you. Did I miss something? Do, are you gonna get to what, how they tied, they got her for this? Because as of right now, besides her refusing uh, yeah, to give a they statement, they don't have like the
1: murder weapon. They but... don't have
0: the murder weapon. They they have kind of a motive, but they have no. As far as I'm concerned, right now they have no evidence, unless yeah. I miss something.
1: Uh, well, let me. We still have a, a bit of information to go here. Okay. As, along with her trials. Okay. So and there's there's multiple um so we'll just get through it okay hopefully that answers hopefully your questions we're also talking about the
0: 60s where they're probably just like fucking arrest her
1: like at this point (laughs) they're like like it's circumstantial but yeah no that's like her husband died somewhat
0: mysteriously weirdly
1: and then this lady dies and it's like super connected especially with the gun being a 22
0: and no her fucking daughter is a soviet assassin sent to stop america you know, them two year old sleeper agents. It's the Cold War, the 60s. I know. I was being a smartass. Good, proceed.
1: I'm, I'm used to it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so she's arrested the same night that Patricia Jones's pu- funeral takes place. Uh,
0: so they arrested her pretty quick. Yeah. Okay. Uh,
1: the same day. The Jackson County Sheriff requested that prosecutors consider a second charge of murder, this one for the death of James, her first husband.
0: Okay, so usually the 60s, the 70s notoriously, mm-hmm. and the 80s, the police kind of sucked ass at catching killers. Yeah. These guys were not holding back. Like, no, you know, the second they they put two that and two was... together and yeah. instantly were like, we're getting her for this too. Exactly.
1: Exactly. Uh, Sharon's lawyers Alex Peebles and Martha Sperry Hickman filed a writ of habeas corpus with the court the next morning and a hearing that afternoon resulted in her release on $20,000 bond while she awaited a preliminary hearing originally scheduled for June 16th. Okay. What are you looking at? Habeas corpus? Uh
0: Uh-huh. It's... So the actual definition, it's used to bring a prisoner or other detainee before the court to determine if the person's imprisonment or detention is lawful. Basically, it's they're saying what I kind of where I was going with it, it was, where's the evidence? Why are yeah. you are holding her?
1: They're basically like, you don't have the actual, like, you don't have the
0: justification to, to hold, hold her. her. Yeah. Uh,
1: so police were able to rule out the 22 caliber pistol that had killed James... Uh, as the murder weapon in jones's death uh specifically because it was still in in the possession of the the sheriff's office however a man who worked with sharon admitted to having secretly purchased a new 22 caliber pistol at her request in the beginning of may so yeah the guy that bought it for her came forward uh police were unable to locate the gun in question when they searched sharon's home though they did find an empty box that they believed had once held a gun Sharon at first claimed to investigators that she had lost the gun on a trip to Washington, then stated simply that the gun had disappeared. Okay. That's good. Uh, Walter was uh, Walter Jones was taken into custody on June 2nd as a material witness to the case and was freed the same day on $2,000 bond. So,
0: Okay. So it seems like they're just kind of arresting anybody they suspect.
1: Basically, yeah. Uh, The initial autopsy performed on Patricia was criticized by police and prosecutors who felt that the recovery of bullets and the testing of stomach contents should have been done. So they just left the bullets in her body.
0: That's kind of fucked up. Uh,
1: Dr. Hugh Owens, who had performed the autopsy, argued that he had recovered one of the presumed three bullets present in the body and that because the body had been quote prepared by an undertaker prior to the autopsy any chemical tests on stomach contents would have been useless so she'd already been embalmed. like that's kind of nuts yeah i
0: mean obviously times have changed and but
1: that's yeah they, i was gonna insane. say they definitely do autopsies now before it's even released to an undertaker but
0: yeah
1: uh owens did add when he asked when asked that he when asked that he had not seen any food apparent in the stomach at autopsy. Uh, the body of Patricia was exhumed on June 17th in order to collect the bullets that had been left behind at the original autopsy, as well as to gather what samples of tissue and stomach contents were possible.
0: Okay, so they're like, hey, we fucked up. You're really far away. Sorry. So they basically were like, hey, we fucked up. They dug her back up to try collect whatever evidence they could. Yes. Okay
1: uh Sharon's arraignment on July on July 11th resulted in denial of bail but the Kansas City Court of Appeals struck down the ruling struck down the ruling days later based on the prosecution's reliance on circumstantial circumstantial evidence god I can't
0: fucking talk okay
1: um so they denied her bail but then it was
0: it was overturned
1: overturned because it was all circumstantial Uh, Sharon was freed on $24,000 bond, uh, on July 18th. So after a delay in her trial date due to her advanced pregnancy, Sharon gave birth to a daughter she named Marla Christine on January 16th, 1961. So
0: she actually was pregnant. She
1: actually was pregnant this time.
0: I was not expecting that.
1: I wasn't either, actually. Uh, Okay so first we're going to kind of cover the her trial in the death of Patricia. Okay and then there's another trial in that for the death of James.
0: James okay
1: Uh, So, though charged with both murders of Patricia and James, Sharon was tried separately for the two crimes. Her trial for the murder of Patricia began in mid-June of 1961, with jury selection beginning on or about June 13th, and the trial commencing days later with an all-male jury. Don't know why that's relevant, but thought I'd keep it in there. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Opening arguments by both prosecution and defense set up cases based on purported times of death, uh, basing their assertion on path pathologist given testimony that James. Oh, my God. That Jones had died about six hours after she ate lunch on May 26th. Okay. The prosecution claimed that Jones had died more than 24 hours before Sharon and John found her body. Defense okay. attorneys argued that the death had more likely occurred six to eight hours prior. So, okay. Uh, Prosecutor J. Arnott Hill cited testimony by Chief Detectives Lieutenant Harry Nesbitt and and by Patricia Jones's husband, Walter, as evidence of Sharon's motive for the crime. The detective recalled statements by Sharon that she was afraid Jones was drifting away from her despite the financial support she offered him. And Jones testified that Sharon had told him she was pregnant by him, and he had thereafter attempted to end the relationship. So, she's saying that even though she was basically throwing money at him, that he was going to leave her. And he's like, no, I did leave her.
0: (laughs) He's like, yep, bitch, right. I'm out. Like, I'm not, (laughs) I'm not dealing with this shit anymore. Uh,
1: the prosecution was unable to firmly establish that Sharon owned or had once had the weapon that killed Jones. Uh, though both Sharon's known pistol and the one that fired the bullets that killed Patricia were 22 caliber weapons. Mm Um, yeah. So they, they
0: They basically said we couldn't establish to...
1: that she owned or had it, but that both weapons for were
0: the same caliber.
1: Yes. Uh Roy Thrush, the man who sold the pistol to Sharon's coworker, uh had led police to a tree that contained what he claimed to be bullets he had fired from that specific pistol. Oh. Yeah. Shit. (laughs) However, when the bullets were extracted from the tree trunk, tests showed that the extracted bullets were not identifiable as having come from the weapon that killed Patricia.
0: Damn, that would have been cool.
1: Yeah. The prosecution rested its case on June 21st after calling 27 witnesses. Sharon's defense, which took less than two days and involved 14 witnesses other than Sharon, uh, who did not testify, focused on breaking down the state's claims of motive and means, arguing that Sharon had no reason to kill Patricia and that the 22 caliber pistol she was alleged to have owned had not been proven to be the murder weapon. How?
0: God, I wish I could find out how they proved that she had no motive to kill Patricia.
1: Considering she's already admitted to having this affair with Walter, he's admitted to it.
0: She's pregnant with his kid. And he he straight up said, I broke
1: Um, up with her because she... That's
0: like all the motive in the world.
1: Exactly. (laughs) Like,
0: (laughs) How do you have 14 or 17 or however many people come up and be like, she has no motive.
1: Yeah. That makes no fucking sense. Uh, After slightly over one and a half hours of deliberation, the jury, citing, quote, just too many loopholes, uh, left in the prosecution's case, uh, found Sharon not guilty.
0: I figured that was going to be it unless something like they dropped a bombshell of evidence. Yeah.
1: Immediately after the delivery of the verdict, juror Ogden Stevens asked Sharon for her autograph, which uh, she was photographed giving to him. Sharon was returned to jail the same day to await the trial for the murder of her husband. Okay. Just weird to me. Like, What? That he asked for her autograph.
0: Was this very publicized?
1: I think so. I think it yeah. was. A, it was a fairly so public, at first, especially like at I mean, first. Who, who wouldn't make like the the second the news has any information on yeah. this trial? Like there, there's too much sorted information to not make it public.
0: Yeah, and uh, at first I was like, dude, why are they doing two separate trials? But I think it was genius
1: because all well, I mean, if if she's acquitted in one thing then, then it's, if they it's they know doubt for the next
0: yes one. if they have weak evidence mm-hmm. for one of them which it seems like they did for this one yeah it it causes because if they do a second trial it's a completely different jury yes so
1: all right so now on to her the, trial for james. for james okay uh despite her acquittal in the case of the murder of patricia jones sharon remained under charges for the murder of her husband james kinney when jury selection began on January 18, 1962, District Attorney J. Arnott Hill noted that he did not intend to pursue the death penalty in the case. So, straight out, like, already not necessarily going for the death penalty.
0: Okay. Damn. He was, like, maybe it is just normal to be like, if we do get this, if we do get her, this mm-hmm. is what we're going for. It just seemed, like, very preemptive. He's like, when we get this bitch, yeah. when can kill her? we going to get her.
1: It it might have also been incentive for the jury to not to call her guilty, but some people some have jur- a harder yes. time at like saying that a person's guilty if they know that that person's then going to be put on death row.
0: Yeah, fair enough.
1: So, I mean, maybe it was just to kind of put the jurors minds at ease that that's not necessarily where they were intending to go.
0: That I mean, that makes sense. Like I could I could definitely see that.
1: Yeah. So the prosecution's case rested largely on their contention that Sharon had been so interested in seeing her husband removed that she had been willing to pay for his murder, supported by the grand jury testimony of John Bolditz. Okay. So he told them that she, jokingly or not, had offered him $1,000 to kill her husband or find someone to do it. Okay uh Boldus, though nominally a witness for the prosecution weakened his testimony on the stand during the trial by claiming that sharon's offer to pay him a thousand dollars in return for james's murder could have been a joke
0: yeah he instantly he basically went up there and said she said this and they're like oh my god and he probably was like
1: but, but she it could have been
0: joking. been joking and then everyone's like mm,
1: yeah i I've mean joked about i mean to be fair spouse yeah exactly like if you if you have a rocky relationship with your spouse i'm sure a lot of people could relate with well, think about, about, it. about. Well, no, she's killing she's, them. Like, she's
0: cheating on her husband, right? Mm-hmm. And it was probably like one of those things where they're like, I could see it happening where they're talking, and it's like, well, we could be together if you just killed him.
1: <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Unfortunately, because he made that statement that it could have been a joke, uh, the district attorney was forced to attack his own witness's credibility. Yeah. Uh, further prosecution testimony alleged that. The Kinney's marriage had been on the verge of dissolution at the time of James's death. Uh, that Sharon's adultery had been a cause of this, and that Sharon had known that she would collect her t- her husband's twenty nine thousand uh, dollar life insurance policies only if she were still his wife.
0: I never put that together in my head. That that's that was the motive. Yeah. Like I thought it was okay. She's gonna. He's gonna leave her, and he was the source of income. It never clicked that. He was going to leave her, so she killed him before she did so she could get the life insurance. Yeah. It never— And
1: he even, like, in the discussion with his parents about them getting divorced, he told them that she had already agreed to give him a divorce with stipulations. Yeah. So they'd already had this discussion they were going to get divorced. And that was just an easier—killing way Killing him was an easier way for her to get more money Quaker. out of it and him out of her life. Yep. Uh, The defense, led by attorneys Martha Hickman and James Patrick Quinn, focused on the circumstantial quality of the prosecution's evidence, noting that prior police investigation had determined James's death to be, quote, obviously accidental, and that the jury was obligated to assume innocence on the defendant's part, no matter how unpleasant they found her moral character to be.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Basically means, (laughs) yo, we know she's a bitch, but come on. (laughs)
1: like That's pretty much what they did. Yeah. The defense, too, attacked the reliability of John Boldit's testimony, calling him a, quote, poor mixed up kid who would sign anything.
0: Yep. Okay. So. Which they probably it only fueled the fire where he basically sabotaged himself.
1: Exactly. Uh, Sharon's attorneys also presented testimony from witnesses supporting the viability of the theory that Donna Kinney had shot her father, including statements that the gun's had been regularly left within Donna's reach at the family home that Donna was able to pull the triggers on toy guns with stiffer triggers trigger pulls than the weapon that caused James's death and that Donna had often been observed pretending to fire guns in play so okay the trial ended in conviction on January 11th after five and a half hours of deliberation In April of the same year, she was formally sentenced to life in prison, and she began her sentence in the Missouri Reformatory for Women.
0: Do we know – I know you're just reading right now. Do we know, like, what – like, was there, like, a piece of bombshell evidence that – because it's very hard for me to believe that they convinced –
1: the jury, the jury uh, that she killed her husband yeah. with so much circumstantial, yeah. circumstantial evidence. Uh,
0: because it seems like she had more motive for the other murder than this one. And granted, different jury, I get that. It's just, it's really odd to me.
1: Okay. I've got more info. Okay. Uh, later interviews with jurors from the trial revealed that three or four ballots had been taken before the guilty verdict was reached. Uh, beginning with the jury solidly divided and moving progressively toward uh, unanimity for conviction. One juror told the Kansas City Star that Sharon's morals had not, had not been considered an issue by the jury and that she thought no juror had been aware of Sharon's previously being tried for the murder of Patricia. So none of these people knew that she was
0: previously on trial for someone else's murder. And that's, that's the whole thing about, like, the jury selection process is they're supposed to weed out people that know. Yes. Know any info. Uh,
1: despite the verdict, James's family continued to believe the best of their daughter-in-law. telling okay. Yeah. Telling reporters on the day of the verdict, quote, we can't find it in our hearts to say anything bad about her, and we still don't feel that she committed the murder. Okay. Sharon herself told reporters that she felt the verdict was a mistake and that she regretted her previous enthusiasm for having a woman on the jury. So. There was like one woman on the jury and And she she was excited about it because she's like, I've got a woman on my side. And then she was convicted and she was like, oh, that was a mistake. Uh, The next week. Sharon's lawyers requested that she be released on bond, supported by a community petition signed by 132 supporters of her innocence. The motion was denied on the basis of first-degree murder not being a bailable offense.
0: (laughs) Goddamn, okay.
1: Presiding Judge Tom J. Stubbs also canceled. Uh, sharon's lawyers that he felt their involvement in a in such a petition at the time when a motion for bond was being considered was highly improper um he he
0: basically said get your shit together basically i I like this judge
1: (laughs) the subsequent defense motion requested that sharon's conviction be vacated because the jury had delivered its verdict based on surmise and speculation rather than substantial evidence
0: okay this is where we're going what i was talking about
1: The motion also listed a series of procedural errors that Sharon's counsel alleged had taken place before and during the trial, including a juror taking, quote, incomplete notes, attorneys for both sides of the case having disputed John Boldit's testimony, and an incorrect number of potential jurors being provided for selection. So there's just a lot of things that...
0: Yeah, a lot of loopholes in the process.
1: Yes. Yes. Uh, the motion was denied by Judge Stubbs on April 19- in April of 1962, but appealed to the Missouri Supreme Court, which in March of 1963 reversed Sharon's conviction and ordered a new trial on the basis of Sharon's defense having been denied adequate peremptory challenges during jury selection in her trial.
0: Okay, so that's why you said trials like plural. Yes. Okay.
1: Uh, Sharon was denied an opportunity for bail in May of 1963, but that ruling was overturned in July, and Sharon was released on $25,000 bond posted by her brother. Okay. The state's request that the Missouri Supreme Court reconsider its position on Sharon's conviction was granted. But in October of 1963, that hearing resulted in further grounds being found for a new trial, this time on the basis of the prosecutor having been allowed to cross-examine a prosecution witness. So, at, at the time of the first trial, that prosecutor wasn't allowed to cross-examine it was, was a witness? Was it when
0: he did... Uh, when he fuckboy messed up and said it was a joke. It's probably so. that.
1: I think so. Cuz I don't think he was cross-examined. I think the prosecutor just criticized. Yeah. his credibility. But he didn't directly like cross-examine him. Uh, a second request for a rehearing on the validity of Sharon's conviction was denied by the M- Missouri Supreme Court, uh, and Sharon and her children moved in with her mother and awaited the start of her new trial. Okay. Okay. The second trial (laughs) in the death of James. Kenny's second trial for the murder of James began on March 23rd, 1964. As jury selection got underway that day, the public was initially barred from the proceedings, but the restriction was soon loosened and the media were allowed in the courtroom. An unusually long jury selection process made the first day of the trial last 14 hours. Damn. Beginning at 9 a.m. and not ending until nearly midnight the same day. Presiding judge Paul Carver noted that due to the notoriety of the case, he had been forced to choose between sequestering the entire jury pool overnight and forcing the court into and forcing the court into like an even longer day. Uh, the eventual jury, all men, were immediately sequestered, but days later a mistrial was declared after it emerged that a law partner of prosecutor Lawrence Gepford had once been retained by one of the jurors.
0: Jesus Christ. Yes. So it, they didn't even do anything wrong. It was something that happened in the past.
1: It was straight up like one of the jurors had...
0: Used this lawyer as a lawyer
1: at one yes. point. <laughs> All right. So now we're at the third trial <laughs> okay. for the death of James. Uh, So Sharon's third trial for the murder of James, originally scheduled to begin in early June of 1964, began instead on
0: June
1: 29th. Uh, Assistant Prosecutor Donald L. Mason declared at jury selection that he intended to death qualify the jury, a process in which a prosecutor... Uh, peremptorily challenges any juror who automatically opposes the death penalty and jury selection. Once again, took more than 12 hours in one day. So basically he wanted to make sure that there weren't any people on the the jury that were completely against the death penalty, okay. which is like kind of the opposite of what they did with the first trial for James, where the guy was like, like reassured the jury that they weren't necessarily going for the death penalty.
0: Yeah, that's kinda weird.
1: Uh John Boldis' testimony in this trial remained contradictory as to whether he believed Sharon's offer had been intended seriously, but he added this time that after James's death, Sharon had asked John not to tell authorities about her one thousand dollar offer for the death of her Ooh. husband. Interesting. Yeah. A new witness, a female acquaintance of Sharon's, testified that Sharon had once joked that the woman should, quote, get rid of the old man like Sharon did. Okay. Yeah. Uh, But defense cross-examination highlighted inconsistencies between this testimony and a similar quote the woman had offered at a previous deposition. For the first time at any of her trials, Sharon took the stand on the last day of this trial uh, to issue a categorical denial of all charges. Uh, the all-male jury deadlocked seven to five in favor of acquittal in this trial, resulting in a second mistrial. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> a fourth trial... In the death of James was scheduled for October of 1964. Okay. Mm-hmm. However, in September of 1964, Sharon, still free on her $25,000 bond, traveled to Mexico with an alleged lover, Francis Samuel Pugliese. Okay. Leaving her children with James's with James's father, so her father-in-law, and traveling as Francis's wife under the name Jeanette Puglis. Okay, so she's traveling under a fig name. The couple later said that they had come to Mexico to get married. Under the legal terms of her bail, Sharon was permitted to leave the country, but her contract with the company that posted her bond prohibited her from leaving Missouri without written permission from the company's agents.
0: Well, yeah, because when you go out on bond like that, the company is basically vouching for you. Yeah. That's literally how it works.
1: Uh, After crossing the border, the couple registered at a local hotel, Hotel hotel Gin, gin like the alcohol, (laughs) uh, again as husband and wife. Sharon, saying that she felt unsafe in the foreign country, bought a pistol. God damn it. Which meant that the couple now possessed multiple guns, having brought one or two with them from the United States. I just love that logic. Like, we brought one or two guns with us, but I still feel unsafe, so I'm going to buy another. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. On the night of September 18th, 1964, Sharon left the hotel without her...
0: Yeah, because he probably shot dead in the fucking hotel.
1: ...fucking husband, either to acquire money because the couple was running low or to get medicine she required. Sharon encountered Francisco Paradas Ordonez a Mexican-born American citizen, at a bar that night and accompanied him back to his room in Hotel La Damn. She, she gets around. According to Sharon's account, she went with Ordonez to see uh, photographs he offered to show her, but he soon began to make sexual advances toward her and she was forced to fire her gun at him in an attempt to protect herself. Sharon maintained later that she had had no intention of killing or harming Ordonez and had intended only to frighten him, but her bullets struck him in the chest and killed him. Responding to the sound of gunfire, hotel employee Enrique Martinez, Rueda, uh, entered the room. So he comes running in. Sharon fired again and hit Rueda in the shoulder. Wounded, he fled from the room, locking Sharon inside, and called the police.
0: <laughs> I love this man.
1: Uh, police, rejecting Sharon's story, theorized that she had gone out that evening intending robbery, and had chosen Ordonez as her victim. When yeah, because re- she
0: left for, like, that's, I was getting ready to ask that. She left to get money. where? From are you where you get money from?
1: Yeah. You're out on $25,000 bail, like. It's not like you can just go to the money store. Right? (laughs) Uh, But when he resisted her orders to give her his money, police believed Sharon had shot him. So uh, police responding to Hotel Levada arrested Sharon on charges of homicide and assault with a deadly weapon. Uh, Sharon maintained that she had not intended to harm Ordonez, merely to frighten him, and that she had fired her weapon at uh, the hotel employee because she feared that he, too, was coming to attack her. Okay. <laughs> Police searched Sharon's purse, finding a gun and 50 shells. Uh, and then the couple's uh, room at Hotel Gin, where they found two more guns and another supply of shells. Authorities took uh, Francis into custody there, initially holding him without charge, and later filing charges of entering the country, country illegally and carrying an unlicensed gun. Uh, the gun found in the couple's room that night was later proven through ballistics to be the same gun that killed Patricia Jones in 1960. Oh, no shit. But because Sharon had already been yep, acquitted double of that jump, crime, they can't try she her could again? not be charged again for it based on the new evidence.
0: That's some bullshit.
1: Yep. Uh, so, Francis was held at the Palacio de not... look. I am don't fucking know. You're okay. <laughs> While Sharon was initially placed in a women's prison before being transferred uh, to the same place that Francis was for her trial. Uh, the couple were arraigned on September 26th and hel- held for trial. In October, Sharon's attorney uh, filed a recurso De Amparo, okay, uh, which is similar to a writ of habeas corpus asserting that Mexico was violating Sharon's constitutional rights by holding her for a shooting committed in self defense. The request was denied, and both Sharon and Francis were tried in the summer of 1965.
0: Yeah, what constitutional rights? She holds none in Mexico, exactly. And on top of that, like she entered in an under an assumed name. With an unregistered weapon, your your rights are, even if you yeah. had rights, they're fucking gone, dude. Like, <laughs> you broke so many goddamn laws.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, Francis, cleared of the charges against him, were, was deported to the United States. But Sharon, <laughs> what, deported to the United yeah, States? Yeah, it
0: it's usually because we usually hear it backwards. Uh,
1: but Sharon was convicted on October 18th of the homicide of Ordonez. Despite rumors that she would receive probation and be deported like Francis, Sharon was instead sentenced to a 10-year prison term for the crimes. When she was officially notified of the sentence the next day, she asserted that she would appeal her conviction. Sharon was returned to the women's prison to serve her sentence. There, she was nicknamed La Pistolera, which is the gunfighter, uh, a nickname subsequently adopted by the Mexican press. Sharon's appeal, rather than overturning her sentence, lengthened it. Fuck yes! (laughs) The three-man Superior Court which heard her case overturned one aspect of her conviction, uh, which were the charges of attempted robbery, but upheld her murder conviction and increased her sentence from 10 to 13 years, saying that her original sentence had been too lenient.
0: I love it. (laughs) Oh, shit.
1: Okay. Okay. On December 7th, 1969, Sharon was not present for a routine 5 p.m. roll call at the prison where she was serving her sentence, but her absence was not officially noted until she also failed to show up for a second roll call later that evening. The news of her disappearance was not reported to Mexico City police until 2 a.m. the following morning.
0: She's probably banging one of the guards. Let's be realistic.
1: A manhunt was then arranged, initially focusing on the northern Mexican states due to authorities' belief that Sharon may have been heading to the last known whereabouts of a former inmate to whom she had grown close while they were in prison together. But also encompassing countrywide transport hubs and eventually circling back to the the Mexico City area. American authorities, including the FBI, were also alerted of Mexican authorities' belief that Sharon may have been attempting to work her way back back into her native country, but the FBI noted that it was unlikely to have jurisdiction in the case. Initial police speculation was that Sharon had bribed the guards to look the other way while she escaped the prison. An unusual blackout had been reported at the prison on the evening of and at the approximate time of her escape and investigations showed that a door that should have been locked had been left unsecured. But further questioning of prison guards and administration showed that oversight at the prison was generally lax, and that it was staffed by fewer guards than it should have been. News reports of the time reported numerous theories that Sharon's escape, including that she had bribed, bribed prison guards, that she may have enlisted the help of a supposed boyfriend who was a Mexico City policeman.
0: called it she was sleeping with somebody Uh,
1: that Sharon's mother had been involved in the escape plan that a former Mexican secret agent secret service agent had assisted in her escape and that Sharon may have disguised herself as a man to effect her escape okay a more modern theory speculates that the family of Francisco Ordonez had helped her escape and then killed her the guy that she shot in the hotel
0: oh <laughs> okay.
1: The intensive manhunt for Kinney or for for Sharon was short-lived, however. By December 18th, the Mexican Secret Service and the Mexico City District Attorney's office were both reporting that they were no longer involved in searching for the escaped prisoner, while the federal district attorney was reporting that responsibility for the hunt belonged to the city district attorney's office. Okay. Investigators speculated that Sharon had already crossed the border from Mexico into Guatemala, Uh, mooting the purpose of a Mexican manhunt, but noted that Sharon was fluent in Spanish after her years in Mexican prison, and she could therefore be getting along rather well in nearly any Spanish-speaking country in the world. Despite vowing to keep the case open and their investigation running until Sharon was back in custody, by the end of December 1969, authorities were forced to admit that they had run out of investigative leads to pursue. More than 40 years after her escape, Sharon remains at large, where her whereabouts and ultimate fate are unknown.
0: Holy shit, that's not the Okay.
1: I I have more, but Okay. She has one of the longest running uh like uh FBI's most wanted files.
0: Okay, this I'll be honest. Drew you for
1: a loop, didn't it?
0: You got me captivate, captivated because I was like, okay, killed her husband, killed the boyfriend's wife of wife, her wife, lover, got out of jail, and then it turned into a cr- fucking multi country Man like, manhunt. This sounds like some shit straight from a movie.
1: It does, right? It's like a lifetime movie.
0: It is. I do like the theory that
1: his family helped her escape just to kill her.
0: Or she slept with some cartel dude, uh, yeah, and they just made her disappear. That is wild, though. That there's been nothing since then. Like they have no no idea where she is. Uh,
1: so there might be more information on what I have because I have like a current status, uh-huh. uh huh, and then like psychology and motivation behind her. But but yeah, like that's like she is still at large.
0: That is nuts, right? So family hasn't heard from her. No one's heard from her.
1: I'll I'll get into like the current stuff here and see if there's any further information.
0: That is but... wild.
1: So, Sharon's arrest and conviction in Mexico had implications for the status of her Missouri legal entanglements, uh, because obviously she was still waiting to be yeah, tried she's... for James's death. Uh, because she was being held in Mexico on October 26, 1964 which was the scheduled date for her fourth trial in the murder of James, Sharon's $25,000 bond was revoked on that date. Uh, though the United bond insurance company, which had posted the bond argued that paperwork irregularities rendered the issuance of Sharon's bail illegal. The court ordered the company to forfeit the bond. Okay. Uh, Sharon was reportedly concerned that the monetary implications of this forfeiture, uh, Oh, it looks like maybe a newspaper was quoting her saying, I could always use the money. Okay. Uh and she said, I don't intend to spend all my life in jail. But that that was obviously when the bond was revoked, but she was still being held in Mexico at that point.
0: That's kinda nuts.
1: A thirty thousand dollar I don't know this word. Super Sedeas bond. Okay. I literally I don't even like not even sure I said it right, uh, was issued in August of 1965 as the United Bond Insurance Company continued to dispute the payment of Sharon's original $25,000 bond. The supersidious bond allowed the company to defer payment of the $25,000 bond until a ruling on the matter was handed down by the Missouri Supreme Court. But when that court upheld the bond's forfeiture, the $25,000 was paid to the state of Missouri in October of 1965. The United Bond Insurance Company later filed suit against Sharon's family to recover the cost of the bail, lawyers' fees, and searching for Kenny and searching for Sharon after her escape.
0: That's the shitty part. Yeah, is like a, the family only hurts takes for that. the burden.
1: Shortly before her scheduled Missouri trial date. Sharon's Missouri counsel filed a motion to change the venue of any eventual fourth trial in the death of James, claiming that news coverage of Sharon's cases had so so prejudiced residents of Jackson County against her that it would be impossible for her to get a fair trial there. I could
0: kind of understand that.
1: When Sharon failed to appear for the murder of her husband, a warrant was issued for her arrest in October of 1964. It is still outstanding more than 50 years later, making it the oldest outstanding murder warrant known to exist in the Kansas City area. Sharon's status in the Mexican system also remains outstanding, though authorities have pointed out that at the time of her escape, jailbreak was not a crime under Mexican law.
0: That's interesting.
1: If she were recaptured there, she would only... She would have only to serve out the remainder of her outstanding sentence.
0: Okay, so if she had nine years left, they capture. They don't add a charge for escaping. It's just she does nine more years. Yeah. But, but that's... then she gets extradited to the United States.
1: Mm, yeah. Um, But yeah, that I mean, that's, like I said, I have like psychology and motivation here, but that's
0: it's pretty nutty. The last
1: that we know about like
0: I was not expecting a and then she got away. Yeah. At the end. Right? I was not expecting it that. It kinda of
1: pisses you off a little bit.
0: A little bit. But I think in my like in my head I, I'm I've accepted that she was just killed somewhere. That's pretty nuts. Like <laughs> yeah. that one caught me off guard. I liked it.
1: I I was really I had never heard of her. I didn't know that she was still at large. Like hmm. it, it's just kind of crazy to me.
0: Well, I mean, as far as like true crime goes, it's it's an interesting story, but it's not, like, like super flashy. So no. you won't know about it. And plus, too, it took place in the 60s. If you think about it, she really only... Now, in this, I'm also, again, playing devil's advocate. If she did kill these people, mm-hmm. she killed one to three people tops. Yeah. That we know of. Yeah. uh, The guy in Mexico might have been her only kill. The other two might have been exactly how she said it was. I doubt it. I mean,
1: it. It's, it's possible, I, but I yeah, doubt I doubt it.
0: Um, Especially since one of the guns matched the gun. See,
1: well, that's, I, that's what I was gonna say is that that they found the murder weapon for Patricia in, in that group of guns. In that group of guns that she obviously had with her. Like,
0: yeah, it's it's pretty nutty though. Like, I understand because I believe that's that's double jeopardy, right? You can't be tried for the same thing twice. Yes. Uh I understand that law because. If you get tried, a jury of your peers find you innocent. It stops them from just trying you over and over yeah. until they get a guilty one.
1: I, I but, also feel like if you have solid evidence, though, like a gun matching a murder weapon.
0: Well, that's the... Because that's uh, not
1: circumstantial. That's... Uh, I got to find it now.
0: Keep keep talking.
1: That's solid proof. You know what I mean? It's a yeah. solid tie. Like, I guarantee if they if they had been able to find the murder weapon before and during that trial she 100 would have been convicted
0: yeah well okay that's what i was i wanted to make sure i had the right title of the book uh that's the whole that whole double jeopardy law like the best for what you're advocating right yeah the best uh example of an instance where double jeopardy kind of fails mm-hmm. is oj simpson yeah. Right. OJ Simpson accused of killing his wife. Mm-hmm. Uh, Obviously, it was a media shit show. The jury found him not guilty despite everyone believing he was fucking guilty. Yeah. And then he well, because, comes out in because public. Because
1: there was reasonable doubt at the yeah. time. That's the thing. But then
0: he comes out later and publishes a book called If I Did It Confessions of the Killer.
1: Yeah.
0: And it's like, because technically he could come out in public tomorrow and be like yeah i fucking killed her yeah nothing can be done about it Mm -hmm. that's where it it yeah that's where that whole thing needs to be fixed but yeah yeah, very interesting
1: I, i i found like i said i hadn't ever heard of her and i didn't know that she was still at large which just blew my mind like because usually like especially with stories like this we we either see them go to jail or they die or yeah they're just never caught but she was caught yeah. Like she was caught and she got away and she's still dead or on the run.
0: I'm assuming dead. And uh, at this
1: point if she was still alive, she was born in 39, so she would be literally over over 80. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So it should
0: be 82 roughly. Yeah. If I if we math right. Um that's actually really interesting. I enjoyed that episode.
1: Do you want to hear my psychology and motivation section?
0: That's up to you. I feel like we've got motivation down pat.
1: I feel like that too. But I, I like when people like analyze why people commit certain crimes.
0: It's up to you. This it's is a all. very
1: small section. This is so up to you. It's your I'm going to read it. <laughs> I, have it. Sp- I have spoken. I have spoken. So um, in a segment of the investigation discovery series called Deadly Women... Uh, who covered the Sharon case, Sharon Kinney case. Uh, the episode. The episode was actually entitled "Born Bad." Okay. <laughs> um. James Hayes, who is the author of "I'm Just an Ordinary Girl," the Sharon Kinney story, okay. speculates that Sharon committed her first her first murder, aka James, for uh, monetary gain that she was essentially just hoping to cash in on James's life insurance policy and that she began to derive pleasure from killing at that point. Okay. Um, and then former FBI profiler Candace DeLong suggests, uh, sorry, supports this assertion with her theory that Sharon is a sociopath uh, lacking in remorse and empathy and therefore had no compunction about killing to get what she wanted uh be it life insurance her hoping her boyfriend would marry her even though he was already married or just cash in general okay uh this idea is echoed by some of those involved in prosecuting sharon who feel that she was a psychopath and uh born bad and that's and that her solution to a problem was to kill somebody um Even those who believe in her guilt, however, note that Sharon had a certain appeal, describing her as rather attractive and admitting that they grew to like her. Uh, The Mammoth Book of True Crime describes her as a relative rarity, a pretty criminal. Okay. And actually, like, from the pictures of her, she's not a bad-looking lady. And I'm
0: not... This is going to sound, like, really sexist. Like, of course she had to like i'm not saying she had to be good looking but she was like landy dudes left and right like she had to have something whether it was her personality which we kind of see is kind of shitty uh so i'm leaning towards she was pretty (laughs) yeah you know
1: um in that book that, that James Hayes wrote, the I'm Just an Ordinary Girl to Sharon Kinney story, um, he also asserts that Kinney might have been inspired to kill her husband by a police magazine she read that told the story of Lillian Chastain, a Virginia woman who shot her husband during an argument and blamed the gunshot on the couple's two-year-old daughter. Okay. Charges against Chastain were filed in February of 1960, which was just weeks before James's death.
0: So they think that that she got the inspiration for the story from there, yeah, okay,
1: That's all I've got, but huh, but yeah, interesting. So I'm glad you liked it.
0: That was really interesting.
1: <laughs> um, but yeah, I, and it's like you said, like she she had to be at least somewhat attractive for so many people to to feel that she was guilty and still find her. Still still come to like her.
0: Yeah, and like I said, it's it sounds horrible to say this way because it seems very simplistic, but her personality, just from the little bit I saw, it seemed pretty shitty. She seemed like a very fake person.
1: But at the same time, if she is a sociopath...
0: She could be putting on an act.
1: Exactly. She, she would have learned how to mimic what people wanted Want to, see. to see and hear to be likable. Yeah, true. So...
0: Very interesting. I enjoyed it.
1: Good. I'm glad.
0: Well, that wrapping up this week? Yes. Okay. Well, we're going to try once again.
1: <laughs> we say it every every time, every episode now. We're going to try. This time
0: it wasn't my fault, though.
1: It was uh, completely my fault. I, I will take the blame.
0: So next week will be a, my episode. I'm not sure. I have three options. Do we? Yes. So I, I want to do an episode on the... uh war of the worlds audio drama
1: yeah i
0: think that would be a cool one uh i want to do an episode on the y2k panic yeah because i i actually vividly remember that that was interesting uh and then my niece so i have two nieces uh one is the reason we did the dragon episode a while back so this gives you the idea of how my two nieces are one's very into fantasy and dragons the other one's like well you did a you did a episode about dragons for my other niece she goes i think you need to do episode for me i'm like okay what do you want she's like aliens
1: oh god i was like perfect i was like perfect for for me
0: but like i'm like that's so like vague so vague so i got to figure out what because we already talked about roswell yes so I got to figure out something. Now we've
1: talked about the men in black.
0: Yeah. So I got to figure out something. So who knows? <laughs> Next week could be any of the above or none of the above. I could do something completely off the wall. True. We'll see. But anyway, <laughs> if you enjoyed it, uh, you know, you know the drill. Mm-hmm. You know, spread us like wildfire. Like
1: follow, subscribe. Yep.
0: All of our social media stuff is on com, or you can email us directly at dianinocast at That it? That's it. All right, well, until next time, uh, yeah.
1: Okay, love you. Bye.